Thanks for listening to The Vine. We're a new church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this sermon helps you in doing that. Good morning. Um, the scripture reading for this Sunday is Luke 12, 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me uh, a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to, the, to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, so this morning, I'm really excited. We have the opportunity to hear from Alan Graham, and he uh, is the founder of a couple organizations, Mobile Loaves and Fishes and Community First. Good morning. It's uh, great to be with you here this morning. I'll never forget, uh, it was about 33 years ago on, uh, in September of 1984, Trisha and I had just gotten married and we were on our honeymoon and we went on a cruise and uh, we're in uh, the island of St. Thomas and we get off the boat, we're walking through uh, the docks and we're standing there and I still have this photograph and I'm looking at about a 150 foot fed ship. Now, uh, a fed ship are the most exclusive custom-made yachts in the world. And I'm not sure what that ship cost at that point in time, but I think probably somewhere between 80 and $100 million. It's that kind of a deal. And on the back of it, it had a helicopter pad with a helicopter sitting on top of that deal. And I'm holding my bride's hands right here, and we're standing there looking at this deal. And I said, sweetie, this is going to be us someday. <laughs> and uh, I, I really felt in my heart uh, that that's where I was headed. And the entire trajectory of my life in terms of my real estate career uh, was absolutely headed into that uh, greed pit uh, as I look back on it uh, now. I got rescued uh, out of that pit. Uh, through mobile loaves and fishes. And it's not that there was this big giant revelation one day. Uh, it's been this uh, slight, slow little movement over time. Uh, going out on the streets and just feeding people and encountering humans uh, that virtually have nothing. Uh, and then we started going out on these street retreats um, and if anybody wants to go on one, we have our uh, annual Easter week, three-day street retreat. They're a blast, so uh, ask me about it later if you want to sleep on the street with our homeless friends in alleyways and camps and shelters. Um, could be a powerful way to enter into the, uh, the Easter season. 
But we're on one of these street retreats one time, and I'm with a, a lawyer friend of mine named John. And we're sitting on the gazebo in uh, Woolridge Park that's between the library and the Travis County Courthouse. And we're sitting next to a homeless guy named John. My lawyer friend, John, asks the homeless friend, John, who's eating a sandwich and his backpack is laying there uh, on the ground, where do you keep all your stuff? And John, the homeless guy, looks at him and he says, what do you mean? He says, all your stuff, all your clothes, all the stuff that you own, where do you keep all this? And John, the homeless guy, points to his backpack and he says, everything I own is in that backpack. And this incredible conversation ensued between John, the lawyer, myself, and John, the homeless guy, um, about our stuff. And it was amazing to watch John, the homeless guy, walk away with this relatively light backpack on his shoulders with everything that he owned, seemingly at peace and happy and not burdened. And we began to fantasize, what would it be like if we could pack all of our stuff in a backpack? What would that imagery look like with our house, our cars, our insurance policies? You know, all the stuff that we have that we've stuffed, all the china and the silver and the clothing in our closets, and we begin to pile all this stuff on our, on our backs. What does that look like? What would that mobility look like? What would that freedom look like? And to me, that became a compelling image to reflect uh, internally on what I was doing uh, in my life. And... I'm not going to pretend that I have conquered that battle. Uh, I've got an iWatch right here, an Apple iWatch, you know. Uh, these things are nuts. You can buy a watch for $35, uh, but these things are 100 But I got one because I wanted a, a watch. It's, it's something that we battle every single day. But what I learned on the streets in regards to generosity was something uh, quite compelling. Um, because we think... And our stereotypes of men and women that live on the streets are people of desperation and hoarding and they have nothing so they're just they're going to come and maraud us and take us uh, all our stuff from us. But the reality is the opposite of that. Okay? You can walk up to a homeless guy and go, man, I just missed the truck. I'm starving. He goes, look, I have a bag. I'm fine. Or here's half my stuff. You know, they hand it to you or they reach into their pocket and they grab their cash and they hand you the cash. No, we'll get some more. It's, it's a really an extraordinarily interesting uh, spirit. And it reminds me of a story that a pastor friend of mine told one time uh, during church service uh, about a very, very, very rich uh, man who uh, was diagnosed with stage four cancer and was given a few months uh, to live. Uh, and the guy had spent his whole life accumulating uh, all of this stuff, all of this money and everything. And he started going to the Lord and praying deeply and passionately, Lord, please let me bring my stuff with me when I die. I got it all. I want to bring it up to heaven with me. You know, and the Lord, you don't need it. There's no need 
But the guy kept just pounding and pounding and pounding on the guy. And finally, uh, the Lord relented uh, to this deal. And so this guy began to think, what am I going to do? How am I going to get my stuff up into heaven? So he sold everything that he had, converted it all into the most beautiful, shiny gold bars that you've ever seen in your life. Bought an awesome casket and lined it all in gold bars. And the guy dies, and he's up in heaven at the pearly gates, and Peter is there. And the guy's got his arm wrapped around his coffin, you know. And Peter goes, what do you got? He says, well, I went to the Lord and I prayed, and he said I could bring my stuff. And uh, Peter looks at him and says, you are nuts. There's no way that the Lord said, yeah, go check it out. So Peter closes the gates, goes to the Lord's office, comes back a few minutes later and goes, I cannot believe it. I can't believe that you convinced the Lord to bring your stuff up here to heaven. What the heck could you possibly bring? And the guy opens up the casket and it's just gleaming, shimmering gold everywhere. And Peter looks at him and says, pavement? I think there's some fundamental little nuggets that I hope we walk away with today that we can um, marinate on about why we are in the situation that we happen to be in uh, today, both in terms of the men and women that we see standing on our street corners. Why is this happening? And we believe very profoundly that the single greatest cause to homelessness is a profound, devastating catastrophic loss of family. It's not like drug addictions or mental health issues or affordable housing or living wages. As important as those are as issues of justice, they just exacerbate their symptoms in reality of homelessness. But there's this breakdown in the family. And why is this happening? I'm going to throw out a couple of, uh, couple of nuggets I was born in 1955. I grew up in the 50s, in the 60s, and partially in the 70s. In the 1950s, the average size of a single family home in the United States of America was 958 square feet, with 3.6 people living in each one of those homes. That's 250 square feet per person. Today, the average size of a single-family home is 2,500 square feet with 2.5 people living in that home. That's 1,000 square feet per person. Now, 250 square feet per person creates a level of intimacy between you and I. And as we begin to expand uh, our rings of how much square footage we are occupying, out to 1,000 square feet and even more, it begins to separate you and I. We become withdrawn from each other, even inside of our, our own families because of all this real estate that we have. And we become isolated. And we begin 
to not necessarily think about the well-being of each other, and we begin to focus on ourselves. In fact, I think we're in a state within our culture today that's quite interesting. And what I'm about to proclaim, I am, so uh, it's no judgment or condemnation. It's just something that we can marinate on, think about. You know, how does it impact our lives? Most of us are blessed. We get to drive around in tinted windshield automobiles so nobody can really look in and see what's going on inside of our automobiles anymore. We have Sirius XM radio just spewing in, and we get to listen uh, to whatever it is that we want to listen to inside all by ourselves with no connection outside. We drive home and we push a button up on the visor and a, a door rolls up and we get to drive into our uh, hermetically sealed single family American dream. Garage door rolls down, we go in, man, we have refrigeration inside, stoves, microwaves, giant screen TVs with the internet uh, pouring in. We go into the backyard and there's eight foot tall privacy fences. Beautiful swimming pools, sport courts, uh, barbecue pits, everything. The front porch is about the size of an iPhone 7 Plus. Just enough to get across the threshold into the house, and then everything's in the, in the backyard. Whereas when I was a kid, we used to get on our bikes. Uh, uh, Jerry and I were talking about this this morning, and we'd drive to the, ride to the neighborhood pool, and there'd be 100 kids in that pool. And I'd look across the way over there and there's Elizabeth Hunt, 12 years old, I'm 12. She's got that little bikini going <laughs> over there. And all the, I never met her before. And I'm looking across the way and that becomes the woman of my dreams. We are going to get married. And then the next thing I know, five minutes later, there's this guy, Martin Hunt, holding her hands. And I'm pissed. <laughs> Martin has taken my woman from me. And so I've got I've to I've run through that on a, on a mental basis. I've got to resolve what I perceive as rejection that wasn't really rejection. It was just all in, in my brain. Um, but maybe Martin and I end up out in the parking lot. And we're going to duke it out a little bit. And then next thing you know, Martin and I become best friends. And this is how life used to be for us before we became so isolated in the environments that we live in. I was walking around the, the, the village, and 20% of the people that live in our village are living there missionally. They're called by the gospel to live in community uh, with people that were formerly chronically homeless. One of my friends that lives in the community, uh, 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 Suzanne, got out yesterday morning about 7.30 in the morning to walk her dog inside the community first village property and counted 11 conversations, 11 deep, not gratuitous, hello, how are you doing, 11 stops and stops talking to people and encountering people, encountering people that have battled addictions, mental health issues, 
loss of jobs, lost homes, lost family members, were broken, battered, abused, despised, outcasts, pushed to the furthest fringes of our community. Eleven genuine conversations. And I think at some level, uh, this verse of Luke, uh, it's not just about money. It's really more about ourselves and our spirit. And I want to read a scripture out of the book of uh, Leviticus chapter 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not be so thorough that you reap the field to its very edge, nor shall you glean the stray ears of grain. Likewise, you shall not pick your vineyard bare, nor gather up the grapes that have fallen. These things you shall leave for the poor and the alien. I, the Lord, am your God. Now, you and I aren't farmers. And I think our modern day vineyard and our modern day field that we are harvesting are our paychecks. And the question is, are you and I gleaning our harvest to the edge of the field and beyond? And I think the scripture in Luke speaks specifically to that. Where is our spirit in that? My spirit began to move where every time my paycheck hits the bank, my family's paychecks hit the bank, money is sucked out of there instantaneously, the first fruits, the easiest, the best part of the paycheck, the most abundant part goes, and it goes away. And that's been going on for decades with no diminution in my ability to live an extraordinary life. And I think we can begin to look at what we're doing and how we're resourcing ourselves you know, and how that level of generosity of coming outside of our homes and encountering people where they are, no matter who they are. Willing to share the first fruits. The fifth goal, and there are five corporate goals of Mobilos and Fishes. Goal number five is to inspire people into a lifestyle of abundance by giving their best first. Most often, the most compassionate gift you can ever give in the world happens to be money to a nonprofit of your choice so that they can make the decisions about how they can resource their organization. I want to close. When we founded Mobile Loaves and Fishes, uh, it was really uh, five white guys from Westlake Hills. It was pretty comical, actually. We didn't know anything about homeless people. None of us had ever served a homeless people person. Uh, the most that we've ever done was excoriate them standing on a street corner. I'm guilty uh, of that. But God knew that. 
for some reason, he called us into this uh, uh, ministry, and uh, I am a complete example that he doesn't call the equipped. Uh, uh, but if you uh, focus on that deal, he will ultimately equip you for the ministry that he's called you into. But in his uh, great humor, he threw into our lives a man named Houston Flake. Uh, Houston was homeless almost all of his life. Uh, grew up in a very impoverished homeless family. Heroin addict, alcoholic, um, just unbelievable. Houston became employed at my church, St. John Newman, uh, at the time that we were uh, trying to create this uh, ministry. And somebody finally said, you ought to go ask Houston um, for some advice. And initially, he became our eyes and ears to the street. I often tell a story where uh, just after we were meeting in one of my law firm friends, uh, co-founder, uh, law office downtown overlooking uh, the Capitol, Afterwards, Houston said, Alan, I'd like to take you to my conference room. And we drive into uh, South Austin, park near Bolden Creek, walk up a windy trail, and encounter some of his homeless friends. And I knew at that moment that I was completely ill-equipped uh, to do this ministry and that I was actually walking side by side with somebody that represented uh, the most to me of who I think Jesus Christ was. And he held my hand metaphorically and took me through this wall of stereotype that allows me now to hug men and women that smell like urine, feces, crack cocaine, multi-day-old uh, body odor, what we call the, the bouquet of Christ. Houston lived in an apartment, didn't have air conditioning. We'd go buy him an air conditioning, an air conditioner wall unit, and, uh, and then he'd find somebody else that needed it more and pull it out and go give it to him. We'd go buy him a brand new uh, mattress from somewhere, and then he'd find somebody that needed it more than him, and he'd give it, a, give it away. He died in 2002 of, uh, of, uh, of cancer, and uh, he was buried in the Popper Cemetery, which is a place that I've learned where the despised and outcast uh, go to be lost and forgotten, kind of the human dumping grounds of, of the people that we want to push to the fringe of our society. One of the most generous people I've ever met in my life taught me more about human beings and connectedness, taught me more about who Jesus Christ uh, is than anybody that I've ever, ever met. Two weeks ago, we exhumed his body from the Popper Cemetery, went through a multi-year process of getting this permission. He has been cremated. And on Easter Sunday night morning, we're going to inter his ashes in a columbarium that rests in the middle of the community first village. He will join seven other friends uh, in that columbarium. And a day will never go by that we don't do a tour, uh, that we don't pass that columbarium, and we'll be able to point to his name etched in granite and tell people what an extraordinary, generous human being 
he is. And I think the legacy that you and I want to leave when we leave this world, because none of us are getting out of this deal alive, is I think we want people walking by that gravestone, that grave marker, and pointing to that name on that grave marker and saying, that was one of the most generous people that I've ever met in my entire life. God bless you. Thank you very much.